Chapter One, Part One of the Memoirs of Barry Lyndon, Esquire, by William Makepeace Thackeray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One: My Pedigree and Family Undergo the Influence of the Tender Passion. Part One. Since the days of Adam, there has been hardly a mischief done in this world, but a woman has been at the bottom of it. Ever since ours was a family and that must be very near adam's time so old noble and illustrious of the berries as everybody knows women have played a mighty part with the destinies of our race i presume that there is no gentleman in europe that has not heard of the house of berry of berryog of the kingdom of ireland than which a more famous name is not to be found in guillem or dozier and though as a man of the world i have learned to despise heartily the claims of some pretenders to high birth who have no more genealogy than the lackey who cleans my boots and though i laugh to utter scorn the boasting of many of my countrymen who are all for descending from kings of ireland and talk of a domain no bigger than would feed a pig as if it were a principality yet truth compels me to assert that my family was the noblest of the island and perhaps of the universal world while their possessions now insignificant and torn from us by war by treachery by the loss of time by ancestral extravagance by adhesion to the old faith and monarch were formerly prodigious and embraced many counties at a time when ireland was vastly more prosperous than now i would assume the irish crown over my coat of arms but that there are so many silly pretenders to that distinction who bear it and render it common who knows but for the fault of a woman i might have been wearing it now you start with incredulity i say why not had there been a gallant chief to lead my countrymen instead of pulling knaves who bent the knee to king richard the second they might have been freemen had there been a resolute leader to meet the murderous ruffian oliver cromwell we should have shaken off the english forever but there was no berry in the field against the usurper on the contrary, my ancestor, Simone de Berry, came over with the first-named monarch, and married the daughter of the then King of Munster, whose sons in battle he pitilessly slew. In Oliver's time it was too late for a chief of the name of Berry to lift up his war-cry against that of the murderous brewer. We were princes of the land no longer. Our unhappy race had lost its possessions a century previously, and by the most shameful treason this i know to be the fact for my mother has often told me the story and besides had worked it in a worsted pedigree which hung up in the yellow saloon at berryville where we lived that very estate which the lindens now possess in ireland was once the property of my race rory berry of berryog owned it in elizabeth's time and half munster beside the berry was always in feud with the o'mahonies in those times and as it happened a certain english colonel passed through the former's country with a body of men-at-arms on the very day when the o'mahonies had made an inroad upon our territories and carried off a frightful plunder of our flocks and herds this young englishman whose name was roger linden linden or lindane having been most hospitably received by the berry and finding him just on the point of carrying an inroad into the o'mahonies land offered the aid of himself and his lances, and behaved himself so well, as it appeared, 
that the O'Mahonies were overcome, all the berry's property restored, and with it, says the old chronicle, twice as much of the O'Mahonies' goods and cattle. It was the setting in of the winter season, and the young soldier was pressed by the berry not to quit his house of berry oak, and remained there during several months, his men being quartered with berry's own gallow-glasses, man by man in the cottages round about. They conducted themselves, as is their wont, with the most intolerable insolence towards the Irish, so much so that fights and murders continually ensued, and the people vowed to destroy them. The Berry's son, from whom I descend, was as hostile to the English as any other man on his domain, and, as they would not go when bidden, he and his friends consulted together and determined on destroying these English to a man. But they had let a woman into their plot, and this was the Berry's daughter. She was in love with the English Lyndon, and broke the whole secret to him, and the dastardly English prevented the just massacre of themselves by falling on the Irish and destroying Padrick Berry, my ancestor, and many hundreds of his men. The cross at Berry Cross, near Carignadule, is the spot where the odious butchery took place. Lyndon married the daughter of Roderick Berry and claimed the estate which he left, and though the descendants of Padraig were alive, as indeed they are in my person, footnote, as we have never been able to find proofs of the marriage of my ancestor Padraig with his wife, I make no doubt that Lyndon destroyed the contract and murdered the priest and witnesses of the marriage, B.L., end footnote. On appealing to the English courts, the estate was awarded to the Englishman, as has ever been the case where English and Irish were concerned. Thus, had it not been for the weakness of a woman, I should have been born to the possession of those very estates which afterwards came to me by merit, as you shall hear. But to proceed with my family history. My father was well known in the best circles in this kingdom, as in that of Ireland, under the name of Roaring Harry Berry. He was bred, like many other sons of genteel families, to the profession of the law, being articled to a celebrated attorney of Sackville Street in the city of Dublin. And, from his great genius and aptitude for learning, there is no doubt he would have made an eminent figure in his profession, had not his social qualities, love of field sports, and extraordinary graces of manner marked him out for a higher sphere. While he was an attorney's clerk, he kept seven racehorses, and hunted regularly both with the Kildare and Wicklow hunts, and rode on his grey horse Endymion that famous match against Captain Punter which is still remembered by lovers of the sport, and of which I caused a splendid picture to be made and hung over my dining-hall mantelpiece at Castle Linden. A year afterwards he had the honour of riding that very horse, Endymion, before his late majesty King George the Second at Newmarket and won the plate there and the attention of the august sovereign. Although he was only the second son of our family, my dear father came naturally into the estate, now miserably reduced to four hundred pounds a year, for my grandfather's eldest son Cornelius Berry, called the Chevalier Borne, from a wound which he received in Germany, remained constant to the old religion in which our family was educated, and not only served abroad with credit, but against his most sacred majesty George the Second in the unhappy Scotch disturbances in forty-five. We shall hear more of the Chevalier hereafter. 
For the conversion of my father I have to thank my dear mother, Miss Belle Brady, daughter of Ulysses Brady of Castle Brady, County Kerry, Esquire, and J.P. She was the most beautiful woman of her day in Dublin, and universally called the Dasher there. Seeing her at the assembly, my father became passionately attached to her. But her soul was above marrying a papist or an attorney's clerk, and so for the love of her, the good old laws being then in force, my dear father slipped into my uncle Cornelius's shoes and took the family estate. Besides the force of my mother's bright eyes, several persons, and of the genteelest society, too, contributed to this happy change, and I have often heard my mother laughingly tell the story of my father's recantation, which was solemnly pronounced at the tavern in the company of Sir Dick Ringwood, Lord Bagwig, Captain Punter, and two or three other young sparks of the town. Roaring Harry won three hundred pieces that very night at Pharaoh, and laid the necessary information the next morning against his brother. But his conversion caused a coolness between him and my uncle Corney, who joined the rebels in consequence. The great difficulty being settled, my lord Bagwig lent my father his own yacht, then lying at the Pigeon House, and the handsome Belle Brady was induced to run away with him to England, although her parents were against the match, and her lovers, as I have heard her tell many thousands of times, were among the most numerous and most wealthy in all the kingdom of Ireland. They were married at the Savoy, and my grandfather dying very soon, Harry Barry, Esquire, took possession of his paternal property, and supported our illustrious name with credit in London. He pinked the famous Count Thierselin behind Montague House, he was a member of White's, and a frequenter of all the chocolate houses, and my mother likewise made no small figure. At length, after his great day of triumph before his sacred majesty at Newmarket, Harry's fortune was just on the point of being made, for the gracious monarch promised to provide for him. But alas, he was taken in charge by another monarch, whose will have no delay or denial. By death, namely, who seized upon my father at Chester Races, leaving me a helpless orphan. Peace be to his ashes. He was not faultless, and dissipated all our princely family property, but he was as brave a fellow as ever tossed a bumper or called a mane, and he drove his coach and six like a man of fashion. I do not know whether his gracious majesty was much affected by the sudden demise of my father, though my mother says he shed some royal tears on the occasion. But they helped us to nothing, and all that was found in the house for the wife and creditors was a purse of ninety guineas which my dear mother naturally took, with the family plate and my father's wardrobe and her own, and putting them into our great coach, drove off to Hollyhead, whence she took shipping for Ireland. My father's body accompanied us in the finest hearse and plumes money could buy, for though the husband and wife had quarrelled repeatedly in life, yet at my father's death his high-spirited widow forgot all her differences, gave him the grandest funeral that had been seen for many a day, and erected a monument over his remains, for which I subsequently paid, which declared him to be the wisest, purest, and most affectionate of men. In performing these sad duties over her deceased lord, the widow spent almost every guinea she had, and indeed would have spent a great deal more had she discharged one-third of the demands which the ceremonies occasioned. 
but the people around our old house of Berriog, although they did not like my father for his change of faith, yet stood by him at this moment, and before exterminating the mutes sent by Mr. Plumer of London with the lamented remains. The monument and vault in the church were then, alas, all that remained of my vast possessions, for my father had sold every stick of the property to one Notley, an attorney, and we received but a cold welcome in his house. A miserable, tumble-down place it was. Footnote. In another part of his memoir, Mr. Barry will be found to describe this mansion as one of the most splendid palaces in Europe, but this is a practice not unusual with his nation, and with respect to the Irish principality claimed by him, it is known that Mr. Barry's grandfather was an attorney and maker of his own fortune. End footnote. The splendor of the funeral did not fail to increase the widow Barry's reputation as a woman of spirit and fashion and when she wrote to her brother, Michael Brady, that worthy gentleman immediately rode across the country to fling himself in her arms and to invite her in his wife's name to Castle Brady. Mick and Barry had quarreled, as all men will, and very high words had passed between them during Barry's courtship of Miss Bell. When he took her off, Brady swore he would never forgive Barry or Bell. But coming to London in the year 46, he fell in once more with Roaring Harry and lived in his fine house in Clarges Street, and lost a few pieces to him at play, and broke a watchman's head or two in his company. All of which reminiscences endeared Belle and her son very much to the good-hearted gentleman, and he received us both with open arms. Mrs. Barry did not, perhaps wisely, at first make known to her friends what was her condition, but arriving in a huge gilt coach, with enormous armorial bearings, was taken by her sister-in-law and the rest of the county for a person of considerable property and distinction. For a time, then, as was right and proper, Mrs. Berry gave the law at Castle Brady. She ordered the servants to and fro and taught them what indeed they much wanted, a little London neatness, and English Redmond, as I was called, was treated like a little lord and had a maid and a footman to himself, and honest Mick paid their wages, which was much more than he was used to do for his own domestics, doing all in his power to make his sister decently comfortable under her afflictions. Mamma, in return, determined that, when her affairs were arranged, she would make her kind brother a handsome allowance for her son's maintenance and her own and promised to have her handsome furniture brought over from Clarges Street to adorn the somewhat dilapidated rooms of Castle Brady. But it turned out that the rascally landlord seized upon every chair and table that ought by rights to have belonged to the widow. The estate to which I was heir was in the hands of rapacious creditors, and the only means of subsistence remaining to the widow and child was a rent charge of fifty pounds upon my lord Bagwig's property who had many turf-dealings with the deceased. And so my dear mother's liberal intentions towards her brother were, of course, never fulfilled. It must be confessed, very much to the discredit of Mrs. Brady of Castle Brady, that when her sister-in-law's poverty was thus made manifest, she forgot all the respect which she had been accustomed to pay her, instantly turned my maid and manservant out of doors, and told Mrs. Barry that she might follow them as soon as she chose. Mrs. Mick was of a low family and a sordid way of thinking, 
and after about a couple of years, during which she had saved almost all her little income, the widow complied with Madame Brady's desire, at the same time giving way to a just, though prudently dissimulated resentment. She made a vow that she would never enter the gates of Castle Brady while the lady of the house remained alive within them. She fitted up her new abode with much economy and considerable taste, and never, for all her poverty, abated a jot of the dignity which was her due, and which all the neighborhood awarded to her. How, indeed, could they refuse respect to a lady who had lived in London, frequented the most fashionable society there, and had been presented, as she solemnly declared, at court? These advantages gave her a right which seems to be pretty unsparingly exercised in Ireland by those natives who have it, the right of looking down with scorn upon all persons who have not had the opportunity of quitting the mother country and inhabiting England for a while. Thus, whenever Madame Brady appeared in a new dress, her sister-in-law would say, Poor creature, how can it be expected that she should know anything of the fashion? And though pleased to be called the handsome widow as she was, Mrs. Berry was still better pleased to be called the English widow. Mrs. Brady, for her part, was not slow to reply. She used to say that the defunct Barry was a bankrupt and a beggar, and as for the fashionable society which he saw, he saw it from my lord Bagwig's side-table, whose flatterer and hanger-on he was known to be. Regarding Mrs. Barry, the lady of Castle Brady would make insinuations still more painful. However, why should we allude to these charges or rake up private scandal of a hundred years old? It was in the reign of George the Second that the above-named personages lived and quarrelled. Good or bad, handsome or ugly, rich or poor, they are all equal now. And do not the Sunday papers and the courts of law supply us every week with more novel and interesting slander? At any rate, it must be allowed that Mrs. Berry, after her husband's death and her retirement, lived in such a way as to defy slander. For whereas Belle Brady had been the gayest girl in the whole county of Wexford, with half the bachelors at her feet, and plenty of smiles and encouragement for every one of them, Belle Berry adopted a dignified reserve that almost amounted to pomposity, and was as starch as any Quakeress. Many a man renewed his offers to the widow, who had been smitten by the charms of the spinster. But Mrs. Berry refused all offers of marriage, declaring that she lived now for her son only, and for the memory of her departed saint. Saint forsooth, said ill-natured Mrs. Brady. Harry Berry was as big a sinner as ever was known, and tis notorious that he and Belle hated each other. If she won't marry now, depend on it, the artful woman has a husband in her eye for all that and only waits until Lord Bagwig is a widower. Well, and suppose she did, what then? Was not the widow of a Berry fit to marry with any lord of England? And was it not always said that a woman was to restore the fortunes of the Berry family? If my mother fancied that she was to be that woman, I think it was a perfectly justifiable notion on her part, for the Earl, my godfather, was always most attentive to her. I never knew how deeply this notion of advancing my interests in the world had taken possession of Mamma's mind until his lordship's marriage in the year 57 with Miss Goldmore, the Indian nabob's rich daughter. Meanwhile, we continued to reside at Berryville, 
and, considering the smallness of our income, kept up a wonderful state. Of the half-dozen families that formed the congregation at Brady's Town, there was not a single person whose appearance was so respectable as that of the widow, who, though she always dressed in mourning in honour of her deceased husband, took care that her garments should be made, so as to set off her handsome person to the greatest advantage, and, indeed, I think, spent six hours out of every day in the week in cutting, trimming, and altering them to the fashion. She had the largest of hoops and the handsomest of furbelows, and once a month, under my Lord Bagwig's cover, would come a letter from London containing the newest accounts of the fashions there. Her complexion was so brilliant that she had no call to use rouge, as was the mode in those days. No, she left red and white, she said, and hence the reader may imagine how the two ladies hated each other, to Madame Brady, whose yellow complexion no plaster could alter. In a word, she was so accomplished a beauty that all the women in the country took pattern by her, and the young fellows from ten miles round would ride over to Castle Brady Church to have the sight of her. But if, like every other woman that ever I saw or read of, she was proud of her beauty, to do her justice she was still more proud of her son, and has said a thousand times to me that I was the handsomest young fellow in the world. This is a matter of taste. A man of sixty may, however, say what he was at fourteen without much vanity, and I must say I think there was some cause for my mother's opinion. The good soul's pleasure was to dress me, and on Sundays and holidays I turned out in a velvet coat with a silver-hilted sword by my side and a gold garter at my knee as fine as any lord in the land. My mother worked me several most splendid waistcoats, and I had plenty of lace for my ruffles and a fresh ribbon to my hair, and as we walked to church on Sundays, even envious Mrs. Brady was found to allow that there was not a prettier pair in the kingdom. Of course, too, the lady of Castle Brady used to sneer because on those occasions a certain Tim, who used to be called my valet, followed me and my mother to church, carrying a huge prayer book and a cane, and dressed in the livery of one of our own fine footmen from Clarges Street, which, as Tim was a bandy-shanked little fellow, did not exactly become him. But though poor, we were gentlefolks, and not to be steered out of these becoming appendages to our rank, and so would march up the aisle to our pew with as much state as the Lord Lieutenant's lady and son might do. When there, my mother would give the responses and amens in a loud, dignified voice that was delightful to hear, and besides, had a fine, loud voice for singing, which art she had perfected in London under a fashionable teacher. And she would exercise her talent in such a way that you would hardly hear any other voice of the little congregation which chose to join in the psalm. In fact, my mother had great gifts in every way, and believed herself to be one of the most beautiful, accomplished, and meritorious persons in the world. Often and often she has talked to me and the neighbors regarding her own humility and piety, pointing them out in such a way that I would defy the most obstinate to disbelieve her. When we left Castle Brady we came to occupy a house in Brady's town which Mamma christened Berryville. I confess it was but a small place, but indeed we made the most of it. I have mentioned the family pedigree which hung up in the drawing-room, which Mamma called the yellow saloon, and my bedroom was called the pink bedroom, and hers the orange tawny apartment. How well I remember them all! 
and at dinner-time tim regularly rang a great bell and we each had a silver tankard to drink from and mother boasted with justice that i had as good a bottle of claret by my side as any squire of the land so indeed i had but i was not of course allowed at my tender years to drink any of the wine which thus attained a considerable age even in the decanter uncle brady in spite of the family quarrel found out the above fact one day by calling at berryville at dinner-time and unluckily tasting the liquor you should have seen how he sputtered and made faces but the honest gentleman was not particular about his wine or the company in which he drank it he would get drunk indeed with the parson or the priest indifferently with the latter to my mother's indignation for as a true blue nassauite she heartily despised all those of the old faith and would scarcely sit down in the room with a benighted papist but the squire had no such scruples he was indeed one of the easiest idlest and best-natured fellows that ever lived and many an hour would he pass with the lonely widow when he was tired of madame brady at home he liked me he said as much as one of his own sons and at length after the widow had held out for a couple of years she agreed to allow me to return to the castle though for herself she resolutely kept the oath which she had made with regard to her sister-in-law the very first day i returned to castle brady my trials may be said in a manner to have begun my cousin master mick a huge monster of nineteen who hated me and i promise you i returned the compliment insulted me at dinner about my mother's poverty and made all the girls of my family titter so when we went to the stables whither mick always went for his pipe of tobacco after dinner i told him a piece of my mind and there was a fight for at least ten minutes during which i stood to him like a man and blacked his left eye though i was myself only twelve years old at the time of course he beat me but a beating makes only a small impression on a lad of that tender age as i had proved many times in battles with the ragged bradystown boys before not one of whom at my time of life was my match my uncle was very much pleased when he heard of my gallantry my cousin nora brought brown paper and vinegar for my nose and i went home that night with a pint of claret under my girdle not a little proud let me tell you at having held my own against mick so long and though he persisted in his bad treatment of me and used to cane me whenever i fell in his way yet i was very happy now at castle brady with the company there and my cousins or some of them and the kindness of my uncle with whom i became a prodigious favourite he bought a colt for me and taught me to ride he took me out coursing and fowling and instructed me to shoot flying and at length i was released from mick's persecution for his brother master ulick returning from trinity college and hating his elder brother as is mostly the way in families of fashion took me under his protection and from that time as ulick was a deal bigger and stronger than mick english redmond as i was called was left alone except when the former thought fit to thrash me which he did whenever he thought proper nor was my learning neglected in the ornamental parts for i had an uncommon natural genius for many things and soon topped in accomplishment most of the persons around me i had a quick ear and a fine voice which my mother cultivated to the best of her power and she taught me to step a minuet gravely and gracefully and thus laid the foundation for my future success in life the common dances i learned as perhaps i ought not to confess in the servants hall which you may be sure was never without a piper 
and where I was considered unrivaled both at a hornpipe and a jig. In the matter of book-learning, I had always had an uncommon taste for reading plays and novels, as the best part of a gentleman's polite education, and never let a peddler pass the village if I had a penny without having a ballad or two from him. As for your dull grammar and Greek and Latin and stuff, I have always hated them from my youth upwards, and said very unmistakably I'd have none of them. Thus I proved pretty clearly at the age of thirteen when my aunt Biddy Brady's legacy of one hundred pounds came into Mamma, who thought to employ the sum of my education, and sent me to Dr. Tobias Tickler's famous academy at Ballywacket, Backwacket, as my uncle used to call it. But six weeks after I had been consigned to his reverence, I suddenly made my appearance again at Castle Brady, having walked forty miles from the odious place and left the doctor in a state near upon apoplexy. The fact was that at taw, prison bars, or boxing I was at the head of the school, but I could not be brought to excel in the classics. And after having been flogged seven times, without its doing me the least good in my Latin, I refused to submit altogether, finding it useless, to an eighth application of the rod. "'Try some other way, sir,' said I, when he was for horsing me once more but he wouldn't, whereon, and to defend myself, I flung a slate at him and knocked down a Scotch usher with a leaden inkstand. All the lads huzzahed at this, and some of the servants wanted to stop me, but taking out a large clasp-knife which my cousin Nora had given me, I swore I would plunge it into the waistcoat of the first man who dared to balk me, and faith they let me pass on. I slept that night twenty miles off Ballywacket, at the house of a cottier who gave me potatoes and milk, and to whom I gave a hundred guineas after, when I came to visit Ireland in my days of greatness. I wish I had the money now. But what's the use of regret? I have had many a harder bed than I shall sleep on tonight, and many a scantier meal than honest Phil Murphy gave me on the evening I ran away from school. So six weeks was all the schooling I ever got, and I say this to let parents know the value of it, for though I have met more learned bookworms in the world, especially a great, hulking, clumsy, bare-eyed old doctor whom they called Johnson, and who lived in a court off Fleet Street in London, yet I pretty soon silenced him in an argument at Button's Coffee House, and in that, and in poetry, and what I call natural philosophy or the science of life, and in riding, music, leaping, the small sword, the knowledge of a horse, or a mane of cocks, and the manners of an accomplished gentleman and a man of fashion, I may say for myself that Redmond Barry has seldom found his equal. Sir, said I to Mr. Johnson on the occasion I allude to, he was accompanied by a Mr. Boswell of Scotland, and I was presented to the club by a Mr. Goldsmith, a countryman of my own. Sir, said I, in reply to the schoolmaster's great thundering quotation in Greek. You fancy you know a great deal more than me because you quote your Aristotle and your Pluto, but can you tell me which horse will win at Epsom Downs next week? Can you run six miles without breathing? Can you shoot the ace of spades ten times without missing? If so, talk about Aristotle and Pluto to me. Do you know who you're speaking to? roared out the Scotch gentleman, Mr. Boswell, at this. "'Hold your tongue, Mr. Boswell,' said the old schoolmaster. "'I had no right to brag of my Greek to the gentleman, and he has answered me very well.' "'Doctor,' says I, looking waggishly at him, "'do you know of a rhyme for Aristotle?' 
port, if you please, says Mr. Goldsmith, laughing. And we had six rhymes for Aristotle before we left the coffee-house that evening. It became a regular joke afterwards when I told the story, and at White's or the Cocoa Tree you would hear the wags say, Waiter, bring me one of Captain Barry's rhymes for Aristotle. Once, when I was in liquor at the latter place, young Dick Sheridan called me a great staggerite, a joke which I could never understand. But I'm wandering from my story. I must get back to home and dear old Ireland again. I have made acquaintance with the best in the land since, and my manners are such as I have said to make me the equal of them all. And perhaps you will wonder how a country boy, as I was, educated amongst Irish squires and their dependents of the stable and farm, should arrive at possessing such elegant manners as I was indisputably allowed to have. I had, the fact is, a very valuable instructor in the person of an old gamekeeper who had served the French king at Fontenoy, and who taught me the dances and customs and a smattering of the language of that country, with the use of the sword, both small and broad. Many and many a long mile have I trudged by his side as a lad, he telling me wonderful stories of the French king and the Irish brigade, and Marshal Saxe and the opera dancers. He knew my uncle, too, the Chevalier Borgne, and indeed had a thousand accomplishments which he taught me in secret. I never knew a man like him for making or throwing a fly, for physicking a horse, or breaking, or choosing one. He taught me manly sports, from birds nesting upwards, and I always shall consider Phil Purcell as the very best tutor I could have had. His fault was drink, but for that I have always had a blind eye, and he hated my cousin Mick like poison, but I could excuse him that, too. With Phil, and at the age of fifteen, I was a more accomplished man than either of my cousins, and I think nature had also been more bountiful to me in the matter of person. Some of the Castle Brady girls, as you shall hear presently, adored me, at fairs and races many of the prettiest lasses present said they would like to have me for their bachelor. And yet, somehow, it must be confessed, I, I was not popular. In the first place, everyone knew I was bitter poor, and I think perhaps it was my good mother's fault that I was bitter proud, too. I had a habit of boasting in company of my birth, and the splendor of my carriages, gardens, cellars, and domestics, and this before people who were perfectly aware of my real circumstances. If it was boys and they ventured to sneer, I would beat them, or die for it, and many's the time I've been brought home well-nigh killed by one or more of them on what, when my mother asked me, I would say was a family quarrel. Support your name with your blood, ready, my boy, would that saint say, with the tears in her eyes. And so would she herself have done with her voice, I and her teeth and nails. Thus at fifteen there was scarce a lad of twenty for half a dozen miles round that I had not beat for one cause or other. There were the vicar's two sons of Castle Brady. In course I could not associate with such beggarly brats as them, and many a battle did we have as to who should take the wall in Brady's town. There was Pat Lurgan, the blacksmith's son who had the better of me four times before we came to the crowning fight when I overcame him. And I could mention a score more of my deeds of prowess in that way, but that fisticuff facts are dull subjects to talk of, and to discuss before high-bred gentlemen and ladies. 
However, there is another subject, ladies, on which I must discourse, and that is never out of place. Day and night you like to hear of it. Young and old you dream and think of it. Handsome and ugly. And faith, before fifty I never saw such a thing as a plain woman. It's the subject next to the hearts of all of you, and I think you guess my riddle without more trouble. Love. Sure the word is formed on purpose out of the prettiest soft vowels and consonants in the language and he or she who does not care to read about it is not worth a fig to my thinking. End of chapter 1, part 1